All right. I am going to get into the message today because I am super excited about this message. It is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. We've been going through this series on the book of Colossians. And just as a quick recap, in chapter 1, Paul starts out with this letter to the Colossian church that he has never visited before, saying that every time he prays for them, he does two things. First, he gives thanks to God because of the love that they have for each other that is rooted in their hope laid up in heaven. Because of their hope in the coming kingdom of God, they were able to love each other with a supernatural love. And he also prayed that they would know the will of God. He did that every time he prayed for them. He prayed for those two things. And then he launches into one of the most grandiose illustrations, descriptions of who Jesus is in the Bible. He is the preeminent God the creator of all the universe. He made everything. He is God himself, a member of the Trinity, the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not only that, he's also preeminent from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, because the tomb is empty, we also, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, also have hope that we will be resurrected as well, that we will enter into eternal life with Jesus Christ. Now, after this, this incredible description of who Jesus is, then he turns the attention back to himself and back to the church, and he says that we need to fill up in our flesh the afflictions, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, which, as I talked about last week, which seems really strange, right? What's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, what Paul was not saying was that Jesus' death was not enough to forgive us of our sins, for us to enter into new life and relationship with God. That's not what Paul was saying. What Paul was saying was that Jesus suffered in his ministry. He suffered through his death upon the cross. And now the church, we are called to walk in his footsteps. And as we tell the world about the love of Jesus, about the grace of the cross, we are going to suffer as well. We are going to be persecuted as well. Jesus said, no servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Paul made this very clear, but he said, we can also rejoice in these sufferings because we're walking with Jesus, because we experience the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, because our lives are being lived for a purpose so much greater than, than anything that we can gain in this world. And now... In chapter 2, Paul, he gets now into kind of a, a bit personal about what's happening in the Colossian church. So that's what's happening here in chapter 2. Now he turns his attention a bit to the Colossian church, and it starts to talk about some issues and things that were going on there. That's where we're going we're gonna to look. And I'm going to get into this because there's a lot to talk about here today. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to get back to these two verses later on. We're actually going to kind of wrap up with these two verses. But I'm going to move on here to verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So Paul is saying to the Colossian church, be careful. Don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone enslave you. What Paul is saying to the Colossian church is you got to be really careful. 
you could actually be captured, be held captive, be enslaved, and not even realize it. The question for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is are we captured, are we enslaved in any way? That's the application for us. That's what it has to deal with. That's what it has to do with us. You know, have you, have you ever found yourself in that situation where you didn't realize it, but you were held captive to, to something else? I realized that the other week when I tried to change my internet service. You ever had that experience? I was like, I'm sick of Comcast, Xfinity. I did some research. I said, okay, I want to go with this other thing. I'm going to make a change. I called them up. I said, hey, what do I do, need to do to make a change? They said, oh, very simple. You need to pay your early termination fee, and you need to pay all the other months that are left in your contract because it's not up. I said, okay, thanks. I'll be sticking with Comcast Xfinity. I was held captive. I didn't even realize it to this contract. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it until I wanted to make a change in my life, until I wanted to move on to something better. Could it be that we're held captive in some way to something that is keeping us from being able to live in the fullness of the gospel that God would have us experience. Now, you say, well, what could that be? Well, here, Paul continues, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, I know when we, we hear philosophy, immediately what comes to mind, right? These dudes, you know, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that, that, that major that you should not have majored in in college, right? That's what comes to mind when we think about philosophy. But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about when he says philosophy and empty deceit. Adolf Schlatter, German theologian at the turn of the 20th century, said this, everything that had to do with theories about God and the world and the meaning of human life was called philosophy at that time. Not only in the pagan schools, but also in the Jewish schools of the Greek cities. So basically, any system that is not Christ, any system that is not the gospel, Paul is here is saying, he's calling that Philosophy, empty deceit, it is another system of this world that sets itself in opposition to the message and the truth of the gospel. That's philosophy, that's empty deceit. That's what Paul is referring to. Now, Paul reminds the Colossians why they don't want to buy into philosophy or empty deceit. Look, he points back to Christ again. He says, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So now, why don't they need any other philosophy, any empty deceit? Because Paul is saying, this preeminent Jesus that you have believed in, this man was God incarnate. In him was the whole fullness of God. Fully man, yet fully God at the same time. And if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in him, he, through the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. You've been filled with this God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. And he is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient don't be taken captive by any other false worldly system. 
What was this philosophy, this empty deceit, this false worldly system that the Colossians were falling into? Well, he gets into that here, a bit of a preview here in these verses. It says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The, the philosophy, the empty deceit, the thing that the Colossians were being, captive, were being um, held captive by was a return to the Old Testament Mosaic law. That's what was happening. They were returning to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, uh, how do I know that? Well, here, this language of circumcision but circumcision was so important in Israelite life back then. On the eighth day, every male baby on their eighth day of existence had to um, have their foreskin circumcised. And that was a sign of their covenant with God. And the skin that was cut off symbolized sin. It symbolized the old, the flesh, the rebellion against God that needed to be cut away. This is why when you read the Old Testament, you, you see it all the time where God says, if anybody won't keep his law, any Israelite, and rebels against him, he is to be, what? Cut off from his people, like a piece of dead foreskin. He was to be cut off from his people. But Paul is saying now, this Old Testament law, the reality of it, the real thing, has happened in Christ because you were circumcised in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in him, your old flesh, meaning that part of you that rebelled against God, that could not obey God, that didn't love God and loved the world, was put to death along with Jesus upon the cross. We were circumcised in our hearts to be able to love God, to be able to walk with God in relationship with him. And he says, when he talks here about being buried with him in baptism, he's saying, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, baptism, you know that language is, why do we baptize? Because when you go under the water, it symbolized that we died also. We drowned. We died. Like Pharaoh in the Red Sea, we died to our sin as well when Jesus died upon the cross and we put our faith in that. And we came out of the water, not drowned, but in newness of life, resurrection, because Jesus also was resurrected from the tomb. What Paul is talking about here is the reality the Old Testament law, everything that happened there pointed forward to the reality of what Jesus would do. So Paul is talking about, this is sufficient, this is supreme, Jesus did it all. Now we're going to come back to this a little bit more later in the next few verses. But he goes on here in verse 13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is Paul talking about here? He's saying that before you believed in Jesus, you had a major debt that you had to pay. What was that debt? It was not something that you could pay with money. It was not something that you could pay with hard time or labor or a prison sentence. It wasn't anything that you could pay with anything in this world. It was the debt that was incurred because of our sin. 
because we have sinned and rebelled against God. The debt that we owe God could never be repaid by anybody. The punishment was hell and eternal separation from God, a punishment we justly deserved. That was the debt that we owed. It was a huge debt, and it had legal demands. We, this is something that we could not avoid. We could not make up just by being a good person. But this debt was canceled because Jesus paid it upon the cross. Hallelujah. You ever, you ever had that feeling of having massive debt and the crushing weight of that? You know, like whether it's medical debt or maybe like a student loan debt or like you took out a loan from the bank and that you couldn't pay it and there's this crushing debt upon you. I experienced that when I graduated college. When I graduated college in 1999, I graduated with about $25,000, $30,000 in debt. I don't know if that seems like a lot or a little to you. It was a lot to me. It was a lot to me. I graduated with a degree in finance. I got a job at an investment bank. My, my, my salary at that time was $40,000 a year, which I was very, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm very happy to get that. That might be good. That might be bad. It depends on, on who you are. But, but it, was, it was tough to pay that student loan debt, okay? It was a good amount of money. And one day I had this, I had this brilliant idea because I was a finance major. I had this brilliant idea. Hey, I get all these balance transfer checks in the mail and they offer me like 0% interest if I just transfer my balance onto that. And here I am paying like what, uh, you know, the, the, what is it, the Fannie, not Fannie Mae, the student loan thing, whatever it was. And I'm paying the government, it's like seven, eight, 9%. I'm like, listen, that's so much money, this interest. If I just transfer it, 0% balance transfer check? That's amazing. I'll put it on there. I don't have to pay any interest. I can slowly pay it off. And you know what? I get these things in the mail all the time. When my year is almost up and that, that promotional period is almost over, I'm going to roll it over to another balance transfer check. And I'm going to do this until I go to the grave, until I die, right? This is, this is brilliant. Oh, finance major, I'm so smart. And I was like, okay, yeah. So I transferred the $25,000, $30,000 onto that. Yeah, no interest, woohoo! And then 11 months go by, 12 months go by, and now it's getting time where it's about to reset like, no problem. I'm going to transfer it. All of a sudden, there are no more balance transfer checks coming to me. What is going on? What I did not realize was that when you carry this large debt compared to like what you make, the banks look at you and go, red flag, high risk, no more balance transfer checks for this guy. So I was like starting to panic because the interest rate was going to jack up to like 20%, and I was going to be stuck in debt and never be able to repay it. I was like, oh my gosh, and I had all this stress and this burden on me. How am I going to repay this debt? And the crazy thing was, I was talking to my, my mother about this, and, and my father had passed away recently from uh, cancer. He had, he had struggled with cancer for three years, and she said to me, she says, you know, when your dad um, passed away, um, you know, uh, he had a life insurance um, plan, and I was able to receive a sum of money, and I want to take some of that money, and I want to pay off your student loan debt. And I said, what? Really? And she paid off my $25,000, $30,000 at the time with this money from my dad's life insurance. And, and literally, when my dad, when he passed away through his death, it, it removed this burden of this debt I could not repay from, from my shoulders. And that is just, that's just $25,000. That's just, 
financial debt. We have this debt of sin against the God of the universe that you couldn't pay with $25 billion. You couldn't pay with 25 billion years of doing good in this world. But he, through the death of his son, removed the burden of that debt from us. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus did. Through his death, the debt with its legal demands was canceled. The record of it was canceled. It was forgiven us because of the work of Jesus. Now, not only that, it says through what Jesus did, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities were armed before. They had weapons. They had something going on where they were attacking us. And through Jesus, his death upon the cross, he disarmed them. What, what, what were the weapons? What were they armed with? They were armed with this, guilt and accusation. Guilt and accusation. The devil, in fact, in Revelation, he's called the accuser. The accuser of our brothers. And it says, what does he do? What's his job? He accuses day and night before God. That's his job. What a terrible job. Stands before God day and night. Those people, sinners, going to hell. God, don't forget that. And he comes and he accuses us. He says, guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what he did. But now through faith in Jesus, with our record of sin being canceled, he is suddenly disarmed. And every time he says, sinner, sinner, we say, no, the blood of Jesus has washed away my sin. And I stand before God accepted and loved by him. He has been disarmed. Now, the problem here with the Colossian church is they were rearming Satan. They were rearming Satan. These demons, these principalities, these powers, they're giving them weapons again in, in their fight against the church. How? Well, the Mosaic law. Let me go back to that again here. He gets into the nitty-gritty here. He says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you or accuse you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You see this language here? Food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. That's Old Testament law. That's Mosaic law language there. In, in, in what way were they arming Satan and the principalities again by going back into this Old Testament law, trying to get justified with God, trying to get forgiven with God, trying to be in a right state with God through doing the works of the law. That was their problem. That's what they were doing. If we look at this diagram here, the Old Testament law was supposed to be fulfilled in Christ. And through the cross, through the record of debt being canceled, through Jesus being risen from the grave and Christ dwelling within us, now we live instead in New Testament grace. We live in a grace that God has given us. But when we go back to the law, what happens is we nullify the cross. We nullify the power of the cross and we enter into a New Testament legalism. 
We enter into a New Testament legalism. That's what happens with us. And when we live in a legalistic system, we live under a legalistic philosophy of trying to earn our standing before God, we give the enemy ammunition to accuse us and to bring us down. Man, there is so much temptation to live under legalism, to become captive to it. Even if you're a Christian, if we're not careful, we become captive again to legalism. We could do this in so many ways. We, we do this by going through the motions with God without a real relationship with him. We go through the motions of reading the Bible or praying or going to church. We go through those motions, but we don't have a real relationship with him. How is that possible, you say? Ask anybody in a loveless marriage staying together for the sake of their kids, and they'll be able to tell you it's possible. It is possible to go through the motions without a real relationship under there. We can do that as Christians in our relationship with God. We can do it because of external pressure. We can do a lot of things because of external pressure. When I, when I was in, in college, I told this story a long time ago. Actually, when I had graduated, we had a, a college uh, campus ministry at New York University. And every Thursday night, all these college students would gather together and we would sing like we're doing this morning. And there would be a message from the Bible and a time of hanging out. It was so much fun. I, I remember every Thursday night, there was this one young woman, college student who was there. When the person, when the pastor got up to, to preach and give the message, she would take out her journal and take copious notes. Copious notes. She was the only one and I was so impressed by this every week. And I, and I would look as she's not doodling. She's not doing her math homework. Like she's actually taking notes from the message. I was so impressed by that. So one day I went over to her. I said, hey, that's so awesome. All those notes that you're taking every week. I'm so encouraged by that. She goes, and she tells me, oh, this thing? Oh, I have to take these notes because my mom always asks me, like, what did I hear in the message? And if I don't have anything to say with her, to her, she's going to get so mad at me. So I have to make sure I write this down so I have something to tell her. I was like, oh, I see. We could, we could do a lot of things because of external pressure without a real internal desire there to back it up. Maybe pressure from your family. Maybe pressure from the church environment you grew up in, maybe pressure from something else, but there's no matching internal desire. We can become legalistic by, by, by treating God like the gods of the Old Testament, like Mammon and Chemosh and Asherah as just another one of those gods that I have to do some stuff, I have to offer some sacrifices to in order to appease so if I appease him, he won't let my life get too bad. And in fact, he might even give me the American dream. So I just, I'll, I'll just show up once in a while. I'll give once in a while. I'll sing once in a while. I'll do some stuff to appease him so that he'll give me the life that I want. We can fall into that type of legalism as well. But friends, legalism does not work if you want a real relationship with God. And that's why Paul was so adamantly warning them against this. It does not work. Legalism, in fact, what it creates is two things. First, it creates a false confidence. It creates a false confidence. You think you're in a good relationship with God 
when you're really not because of some stuff that you are doing. Like Jesus said about the Israelites, this people honor me, honors me with their lips. They're doing the stuff. They're singing, but their hearts are far from me. There's no internal desire for God. Like he said about these Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, the herbs, their garden herbs. They tithed it. They gave a 10% of their garden herbs to God, and have, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you've, 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 you've done all these external things, but in your heart, you don't really care about what really matters. You don't really love me. You don't really love my ways. You don't really love justice and faithfulness and all these other things. It creates a false confidence. Confidence may be false, but the Pharisees that it creates are very real. That's the second consequence of legalism. You think you're okay with God because of this philosophy and empty deceit that you have created, and it actually, you believe it so much that you can look down on other people. Like the Pharisee, that Jesus gave this parable about that Pharisee. You may know this story. He walked into the temple, and a tax collector, a really bad man back in those times, went into the temple too, and the Pharisee prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Man, if I was like the tax collector, I'd be like, come on, man, give me a break. Really? I'm right here, bro. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, I do all this stuff. And what did the tax collector say? God, he beat his chest. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And what did Jesus say? Who walked away justified before God? Not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. Legalism creates false confidence in our standing with God, but it creates real Pharisees in the church, amongst the people of God. Now, in verse 18, Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, what is he talking about here? Asceticism, we kind of get, right? Don't do this, don't do that. Worshiping angels, I'm not going to go deeply into this. Let me, just, let me just put it this way. Let me say it this way. When we um, go back to the Old Testament word of God, the Old Testament law, we are going beyond the word of God, of the New Testament, of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. When we start worshiping angels and all this other stuff that they're doing, we go beyond the word of God as well in terms of what was described in the gospel. They were going beyond the word of God, the simple gospel message. They were not holding on to the head, which is Christ, in order to be able to grow in a right way. And because of this, the accuser was able to just keep on accusing them. Satan used the Mosaic law against the Colossians. He uses our legalism against us. Legalism 
can actually disqualify you. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize this, that you could, what does disqualify mean? It's not like, eh, you're off the game show. It means, eh, you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. You can be disqualified if you are not careful. You may think that you are walking with God only one day to find out in a terrible way that you have not been walking with God in faith all along. Paul is saying legalism can actually disqualify you. Now, I'm getting into wrapping up here. Let me importantly say this, okay? Real practically here. In the church, we're always going back and forth between legalism and antinomianism, right? We We know what legalism is now, right? Legalism is thinking you can earn your right standing with God. Antinomianism, from the word anti, meaning against, and namas, meaning law, against the law, that's where you think you could do whatever you want because you have a right standing with God. It means just going out and sinning, and you don't care because I'm forgiven, and God has forgiven me because I believe in Jesus. They're they're two opposite extremes, and and we kind of yo-yo back and forth between that, legalism and antinomianism. Now, legalism, what is the cure for legalism? The cure for legalism is grace, okay? We have not earned our salvation through anything we've done, but we receive it by grace. Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not what you've done, it's grace. The cure for antinomianism is discipline, is discipline. When we think we could do whatever we want and sin without any consequences and just because God has forgiven me, he'll always forgive me, I can do whatever I want, the cure for that is discipline. Paul said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The cure for legalism is grace. The cure for antinomianism is discipline. Now, it's very important to understand that grace is not antinomianism, okay? Grace is not antinomianism. The grace of God, we don't live under legalism anymore. That grace cannot lead us into antinomianism. Paul said that this is bad. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul was saying, hey, Basically, should I just keep sinning because of the grace of God? Now sin doesn't matter anymore, right? It's always going to be covered by God. He says, no, we don't do that. Grace should not lead to antinomianism. At the same time, discipline, we need to understand, does not equal legalism. Some of us, we may think that, you know, we have this allergy to the, to the word discipline, right? Oh, discipline. Oh, that's legalism. Oh my gosh, in my relationship with God, any discipline, if you talk about that, that's legalism. No, discipline is not the same thing as legalism. Discipline is extremely important. In, in Daniel, this guy who was a righteous man prayed three times a day, three times a day at certain hours. Why? Out of discipline, to pray and to spend time with God, even when he knew he was going to be arrested for that and executed for that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, points to the Probably this reality, the the tradition of the church of gathering together every Sunday, when he says on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there'll be no collecting when I come. It seems like the church regularly got together every Sunday to worship God. Why? 
like Hebrew says, uh, to not get into the habit of not meeting together. There was a certain discipline of spending time together in worshiping God. Jesus said in Matthew 26 to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And here's the line, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why do we need discipline? Because oftentimes we're willing to, to follow Jesus to the end of the world, but our flesh is weak. We get lazy. We fall into temptation. So we need discipline and safeguards in our life to prevent that. Let me just give you a few examples as we're getting into the close here of grace and discipline both working out. We need both. How do we grow in the growth of Christ? How do we hold on to the head? We need both grace and discipline. Let me give you an example here, a few examples. Drinking, alcohol. Grace says you drink alcohol with thanksgiving. The Bible does not say that drinking is a sin. It's not a sin. If you drink wine, beer, that's totally okay, right? That's your choice. It is not a sin, and we are to do it with thanksgiving. That's what grace says. Discipline says, well, maybe I, I need to do it in moderation. Like, I'm not going to drink more than a glass at a time because the Bible says don't get drunk. The Bible says we need to act wisely before others. Maybe some of you may say, I don't drink at all. There are many people who say, I don't drink at all because I don't want that temptation in my life. That's totally legit. That's cool. That's discipline at work for some people. For example, with giving, financial giving to the church or to others, grace says we do it joyfully. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want your stingy giving like, oh, here comes God again. Oh, I'm opening my wallet and something like that. He hates that. God wants a cheerful giver. And so we should give joyfully when we want to, when we have a desire to. Discipline says, oh, maybe I give a certain percentage of my salary because I know what happens with temptation. Because there's always things I need to spend money on. There's always things that I want to do. And before you know it, I'm going to be giving hardly anything to God. That's why me, Christine, what we receive, we do give at least a 10% of, of my salary to the Lord because I know that if I don't have that discipline in my life, it's going to be eight, then six, then one, <laughs> then when I feel like it, when the joy of the Lord comes upon me, oh, that joy is very fleeting and I can't, where's that joy? It just doesn't come around very often, right? Or prayer. Through prayer, we say, you know, I want to pray what grace says is, a real, I want a real connection with God. I want joy when I pray with God. I really want to be with him because it's a relationship. Discipline says, you know, I know how I am and I need a regular time of prayer because if I don't have that, I ain't going to pray. When I was many years ago, I kind of got into the grace side of this and I, I took, I had a guitar and I just knew how to strum a few chords, G, C, D, E minor, you know, those chords, right? I could, I could do those. I gave up at bar chords. I just couldn't do it. But I knew enough to be dangerous, right? And I, so I would, I, there was a time where I just kept playing these chords over and over and over again. And I was praying and I was singing and just worshiping God and praying. And I was having these experiences with God that were so sweet. I literally would spend an hour, two hours at times just praying and worshiping God. It was so sweet. And I said, this is the way it should always be. Oh, I want it to be like this every time. I'm only going to pray when it's like this. Guess what happened? <laughs> you know what happened. Those times started being coming around less frequently. And before you know it, I was hardly praying at all. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen, right? Like that, my prayer life fell apart. I needed the discipline as well. We need both. 
We need both. Grace and discipline, not legalism, not antinomianism. This is how, this is how we hold fast to the head. Jesus, he is the head. This is how we hold fast to him. This is how we grow with a growth that is from God, not from our own philosophies and empty deceit. I'll invite the worship team up now as I go into our closing here. We want to hold fast to the head. We want to grow with a growth that is from God. Let me read these last verses here. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, you died, in other words, to that philosophy, to the old systems, why, as if you were still alive in the world, like you'd never believed in Jesus at all, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism in severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let me repeat that last line. They are of no value, none, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As I like to say in my house, not a zip, zilch, zero, zero, ding. Like I say zero in a lot of different languages for some reason. Nothing. No value. And, and if you're hearing me, maybe there's some of you in this room this morning, you're going, you know, I do this church thing a lot. Maybe you've been doing it a long time. But why don't I feel like how I think I'm supposed to feel? Why am I not in a relationship with God in the way that I, I think it's supposed to be? Why am I in this prolonged frustration? And why do I feel like giving up so often? Because it's of no value. It's not how you grow. It's not how you stay connected to Jesus. You know, I became a Christian, I think it was in 1992 in high school. And then 10 years later, in 2002, I, I started going to graduate school for, for Bible study, for seminary in 2002. Started going to seminary, started serving as a youth pastor, entered into vocational ministry. It's been 20 years. This fall in September, it'll be 20 years of being in pastoral ministry, 2022. You know, you know how hard this thing is? You know, I... I stand up here before you on Sundays. I still struggle. I still sin less on Saturdays than I do on Mondays. I still do that. Because I know I got to come up here in front of all of you. I still do that. Saturday, oh, I can't sin. I got to get up in front of the people tomorrow. If I sin, Holy Spirit may not come. <laughs> It'd be a bunch of dead eyes, zombies looking at me. I'm going to be scared, God, <laughs> you know? Nothing may happen. I can't sin on Saturday. But on Monday, it's so much easier to sin. Because I got time to get right with God before next Sunday. I got Tuesday. Don't forget about Wednesday. I got Thursday to go do something nice to somebody. I got Friday to go read my Bible and pray more. Saturday. I create my own Levitical purification laws. 
is what I'm doing. Take six days to cleanse yourself of sin. Then you can come into the presence of God once again. I create this false system again. It's so easy to fall into that type of captivity. It's of no value. No value. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of the gospel message, the call of God this morning is to take that old system and to throw it away and to bring it before God once again to repent of it and say, Lord, I've been held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I've thought that I've created my own system of being right with you. But it doesn't do it. It doesn't change me. And Lord, I want to change. I want to really grow with the growth that comes from Christ. And it means coming back to the gospel coming back to the Lord, the preeminent God who died upon the cross for our sins and canceled our debt. God, fill me with that knowledge once again that joy and thanksgiving would come out of me and love would flow out of me and that that would be why I pursue you, why suffering is even something I rejoice in because there's a real relationship behind this. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. forgot verses 6 and 7. He said, as we entered into this relationship with God, so we continue. By grace. By grace. That's how we started. That's how we continue. By the grace of God. 